So there is one group of individuals who are more susceptible to potential conspiracy theories um, than anyone else. And it's a group of individuals who depend largely on the federal government for their income, their livelihood, and that with only, you know, a few steps, the federal government could really terminate, you know, their ability to live free and there wouldn't be much they could do about it. And this group of people, um, to define them, you know, simplistically would be to say, you know, I'm going to call them military retirees from the post-World War II era. And what does that mean? What that means is that following World War II, right, we had some changes in the federal government. There was some bureaucracy that was created out of that whole restructuring. And you had a lot of military people in that era, you know, as you moved into the Korea and the Vietnam, like <clears throat> that, that gap, that gap of people who were probably brand new in World War II and therefore never saw any action and, you know, stayed in the military following World War II. They didn't get out, but it wasn't the career military people who saw action in World War II. And then they were in that gap where they were maybe too far along in their career to have much involvement with Korea and certainly with Vietnam. So, I mean, from an age range, you need to sort of imagine, you know, someone who was 18 years old in 1945 or 1946, the war's over, maybe they join. Um, heck, maybe they joined in 1944 and they never actually made it to the front lines anywhere. <clears throat> you know, and so then by 1954, they're already 10 years into their commitment. So by 1964, they could have retired, you know, after 20 years. Um, that's kind of the age range, right? P military people who were retiring, you know, 1960 to 1970 in that little window. And so... For those type of individuals and the way that kind of this military life was back then, a career military man didn't have a lot of opportunities on the outside in the 50s and the 60s. It's hard to imagine, you know, specifics because you know what kind of career they had, what kind of specialties they had in training. Um, you know, I'm really thinking enlisted types who didn't have college education, things like that. And if they were staying in for 20 years, um, you know, by the time they retired, probably all of their income for the rest of their life was going to come from the federal government through, the, through either retirement pension um, and then later through Social Security. And that includes health care, um, access to military installations and all those kind of benefits that they get. 
that they've lived their whole life knowing. And that's important because it's not to say that a military retiree couldn't survive in the world if the federal government cut off all of his benefits. He would become just like a lot of everyone else. <clears throat> but when they've spent 20 years in the military or even longer, they don't necessarily know anything else. And, you know, I don't like to want to talk about my personal experience a whole lot in here. I don't want to use anything from myself to justify any opinions. But having seen an inordinate amount of military retirees, you know, over my career, um, I can tell you personally that there's a lot of them that don't know anything other than the United States military, even as retirees. And so that group of people are vulnerable to government pressure, especially, you know, pre-internet days. It's really hard on a lot of this stuff to imagine, you know, the practical considerations of what pre-internet life really was. And I mean, pre-cell phone life for a lot of us. Um, you know, the kind of thing where if you wanted to find a location, you got to a town, you had to stop and ask someone, or you had to pick up a phone book, um, you know, and hope it was current. You know, it's um, the connectivity, the connected tissue of society was just not as robust as it is today. And so it would not be difficult to really feel isolated or dependent, completely dependent on a single entity, you know, coming up through the way the military was back then, and then living in that kind of society. And so, um, further, the Korean and the Vietnam War, they were not popular by the end. And those two conflicts began to create a less welcoming environment in society at large for military veterans. And so it's not difficult to imagine how a military retiree from that period could feel a lot of concern over losing their military benefits. And so that brings me then back to some of the people who were involved with some of these military incidents in the 1940s and early 1950s from the U.S. military. Um, and I'll even go so further, even in the 1980s with some of the nuclear stuff. And, and I'll talk about that um, next, probably. But back to Roswell. Recently, the guy that's in those pictures with Roswell, with the dang general, he's the guy that found the stuff. He was there. He showed up. You can find documentaries or other shows that have interviewed him and he'll go back to that location and all that stuff. And I mean, he'll straight up tell you that it wasn't no damn weather balloon. Um, and he'll tell you, you know, he was ordered to keep quiet or, you know, and even, even some, <clears throat> some witnesses, especially when they work for the state or the federal government, uh, they will tell you they were straight up ordered not to say anything. Um, sometimes they will indicate that they were told in a more subtle way not to say anything. But anyway, the indication from him was 100% that, yeah, it wasn't a weather balloon and he was told not to say anything. And he'll even describe it, you know, as, you know, what you see in that picture is not even the debris, first of all. And then what he had in his hand, you know, he said it was light, light tin foil, but um, you couldn't bend it. 
shows how well it crinkled and wrinkled up like in that picture. Um, and that starts us down this path. Well, why did it need to be a weather balloon to begin with? Right? What they have in those photos is not the actual debris. Um, according to the eyewitnesses who were there, and, and why would it need to be? Like, why do you need to show the weather balloon if that's what it is? Like, I don't know where, like, what was the, like, there's just some skeptical motivation about this pageant that it seems that they try to put on about this. Like, whether, I mean, whether it was Russian, whether it was alien, whatever, but why put on this pageant about a weather balloon? Imagine again, today, a weather balloon crashes in some field. Is an Air Force general going to get a show up there and then put that weather balloon on television? Or on the internet to prove to people that this was a damn weather balloon. No, they're not going to do that. It's unnecessary, right? No, no one even think to do that. Um, so it's it, there's a, it's a lot of interesting convergences on this in terms of motivation. And then so as we go back to that conspiracy lane, we have an eyewitness coming forward way later in life, and you begin to see, and you'll you'll begin to see a pattern as we get through this. And it begins to correlate with the practical authority of the United States government. And what that means is when a person hits 90 years old, especially 90 years old now, right? In the 1960s, in the 1970s, especially in the 1950s, there wasn't any whistleblower protection, especially for military members. <laughs> I mean, I think it would be the opposite, right? It would be the truth. Um, and we don't even have to talk about the communist scares and all of that stuff that went on in the 50s that really there was a lot of places where federal agencies had a blank check to do whatever they wanted with minimal oversight and minimal accountability and so it's it gets even easier to imagine the more you go back and understand the nature of the federal government in that post-world war ii area in that anti-communist area the very beginnings of the cold war how an enlisted military member would just not have even really the thought to, you know, betray his orders and be ordered not to say anything. And you can't even necessarily say that they're wrong, right? You may want to sit here and it's kind of easy to hear and say, well, you know, I mean, clearly the federal government is lying to our faces. Somebody should say something, but they kind of do that all the time. And, you know, this is where, this is, why, this is exactly why I'm starting this whole series with the UFO discussion, is because there are certain things that you could arguably, arguably say are dangerous for the country as a whole for them to be revealed or disclosed, or at least not controlled in the way that they're disclosed. Now, I hate saying that. Um, you know, but it's true. And, you know, we get some examples, you know, that are fairly easy to understand later. You know, the easiest one to understand, and people aren't necessarily going to draw analogies right away because they probably don't think about it like this. But it's when somebody dies, right? Somebody's flying an A-10 or F-16 and it crashes and you pretty much know the pilot's dead or the pilot hasn't been found because it's going to come out. And so that information needs to be controlled until the family of those injured or dead in the accident can be told, right? 
And so it doesn't mean it has to be secret forever, but it needs to be secret and controlled for a certain amount of time. And so what we get then, it's not a matter of principle that it's wrong to secure or conceal certain information. It becomes a matter of degree for how long does it need to be kept secret. And that, I think, fits in very well with what we've seen recently in the whole and then the whole overall trajectory of the UFO phenomenon with regards to the, to the American government. So what we had with Roswell was an initial report, wreckage, smoldering, debris over a large area, unclear exactly about the reports about bodies being recovered, but which ended up with the official Air Force position that it was a weather balloon with a general posing with some pictures and then making a statement. And that was kind of the beginning. The Air Force had actually just been created not long before that, or maybe even not officially just yet. So, you know, saying Air Force may not even been technically accurate, you know, depending on how that administrative process played out in terms of moving from the Army Air Corps over to the Air Force. But that doesn't really matter. Practically speaking, however, it could play a role in exactly the higher-level decision-making about sending a, you know, quote-unquote, Air Force general out to a weather balloon crash. But anyway, that was the beginning of federal government's sort of initial stance on this. Now, if we just step back and say, well what we have going on here. It's unclear. Because any way you look at it, this was likely, though not positively, or, you know, we don't really have a way to confirm or verify, but this was the first time that the Air Force or the federal government was exposed to UFOs. Now, this isn't exactly a UFO, right? Because no one actually saw flying. What we have is a, you know, identified, unidentified crashed object, I guess would be the most accurate description. And there's no eyewitness accounts of the vehicle itself, only the debris. And it seems, based on the reaction, in my opinion, that this was probably the first time that the Air Force or the Army Air Corps was faced with this exact scenario. And then we sort of moved past Roswell, you know, into the late 1940s, and then you really start seeing some UFO activity pick up in the 1950s with this saucer craze, right? So, I mean, like I said, I'm not going to chronologically go through every UFO side, I guess that's the point here. Uh, the point is to satisfactorily accept that we have some of these accepted observations of unknown aircraft or unknown flying vehicles of some type somewhere in Alaska on the West Coast there in the 50s. Then you had the whole incident that happened over Washington, D.C. Now, this is one that really triggered uh, much more involvement from the federal government than previously, because you literally had 
know, radar operators and different people who just saw a whole bunch of this stuff. It wasn't one or two individuals who showed up at Roswell and, you know, made an initial report, changed their story, and then came back, you know, years later and said what it was. You know, there was just too many people that saw it, too many government people who witnessed actual data about it, radar returns, and all of these different things. You know, and like I said, I'm not going to get into the details. Uh, that's a super long story. All the all the witness testimony and evidence and different things about that Washington DC saucer event. Uh, so if you don't know anything about that or you're curious about the facts, you can go look that up on your own and draw your own conclusions. And because we're not really here to prove whether aliens are real or not, or whether these UFOs or aliens or something different. What we are here to discuss is the federal government's approach to things that they clearly don't know what they are, or things that they didn't know what they are, but they were just really bad at crafting a story to explain without telling us what they knew, which is really the whole point of this discussion. What did the government know, and then what did they tell us, and what did maybe they learn later? And uh, this event is very strange. Again, you have these generals coming out, saying some stuff. And again, it's very interesting who gets selected to make these statements. Not the, the Secretary of Defense, though I think he did make some statements. Um, I believe the President, I think it was Truman. Uh, don't quote me on that, but if I remember correctly, it might have been Truman. Um, that makes a brief, at least acknowledgement to the events. You know, and there's a whole bunch of PR stuff going on here. A lot of what was said in this context, in this event, makes a lot more sense from a government perspective. If you're talking about the capital of the United States and potentially unidentified aircraft being able to penetrate that airspace and then retreat without any kind of adverse effect on them. So if it had been something like the Russians, that would have been extraordinarily alarming for the federal government if Russians could fly a whole bunch of aircraft over Washington, D.C., and then turn around and get out of there without, you know, our fighters being able to even catch up to them, to even see what they were with their own eyes. Um, and then... It's really hard to sort of pair out what the official story is now about that, just because so much information has come out since then about that. So, for example, when the first statements you know, came out from the Air Force about what those objects were, what kind of threat they posed, et cetera, et cetera, what they thought they could confirm... You didn't have televised interviews from those radar operators you know, 10 years, 15, 20 years later, whatever it was. That information wasn't available at the time, so there was no real check on the official story from any insiders or people with direct knowledge that we have today when researchers go back and take a look at these events. And so, again, we're still in that area of history and Cold War and post-World War II embodiment that 
these individuals who are career government employees, whether it's on the military side or on the civilian side, the federal government just had enough control over the economics of those individuals' futures to be able to provide credible threat um, and consequences should those individuals speak up about things that they weren't told to talk about. I haven't personally seen deep dive interviews into that event as much as the Roswell event. It's kind of interesting that, you know, Everyone's heard of Roswell, right? Not everyone that you speak to has heard of the saucers over D.C., which is a little bit counterintuitive considering, um, well, considering everything, right? The official story of Roswell was a uh, crash weather balloon, right? Take that on its face value, except if it's true, it's meaningless, it's pointless, not a big deal. The intrigue about Roswell, right, comes from those initial reports but again, those initial reports were just from a few people, where the D.C. event had tons of people who saw it. They witnessed it with their eyes. They scrambled jets. Clearly, that in and of itself shows that somebody at the time observed these things either through their eyes or on radar, and they launched aircraft because they believed there to be flying aircraft of unknown origin over the capital. That's indisputable. But there's just less intrigue about it for some reason, and I believe it probably has to do um, with the fact that there was more acknowledgement of something actually having been there. But then I also read reports that some official lines were talking about they weren't sure what it was, but it might have been radar anomaly and all these other different things. Probably more plausible at the time than the weather balloon story of Roswell, yet still not entirely believable with the way that they reacted, because again, it goes back to that repeatability issue. You know what a weather balloon is, and you know what it looks like when it crashes, why do you need a general to show up to explain away crash debris that it was a weather balloon, especially when you didn't have any eyewitnesses to the actual craft itself. Here, there seem to have been eyewitnesses, though I haven't seen, I'm not sure I've seen any interviews of actual witnesses from that DC event, but I have seen interviews of radar operators who 100% said what they saw. It was more than just one guy, there was multiple guys who were operating radar that saw something. And to say that it was some sort of weather or temperature anomaly in the radar returns, okay, not unusual for weird radar returns, but it wouldn't have been the first time that the radar operator should have seen some kind of weather anomaly. The chances of it being a one-time ever in history weather anomaly that coincided with other people claiming to have seen some flying saucers, that don't make no damn sense, especially in some sort of persistent formation of weather anomalies. That just doesn't really match up with the way nature works or even how radar works. Uh, definitely not the way that weather and temperature gradients in the air. They don't just form from formations that look like uh, aircraft. So, curious. 
And just to foreshadow a little bit, the heck of a lot better answer than swamp gas. So there we are. So, I mean, let's, again, we're not going to deep dive into the evidence of a particular event. We have another event in the 50s over D.C., and the official response is, we don't really know what it is. We don't think it's a threat. But there wasn't an acknowledgement that there was actually unidentified aircraft in the air there. That was not the answer. That was not the conclusion. Um... And it probably should be pointed out that this happened enough time after Roswell that there were smatterings of other UFO reportings going on around different places. So the UFO subject was now not brand new. If we just accept that it was somewhat brand new at Roswell, it was now not brand new in this DC event. And which that leads us to the likelihood that at least a discussion of a response to an unknown craft that happened before. And while they may not have had an exact policy for you know, giving statements about these things, um, it wasn't the first time. Right? So it wasn't the first day. So while the responses still weren't great, it explains a little bit how they were better. And... I think here's a good point to sort of, again, touch on the psychology of individuals in the federal government. There is a big leap from perspective on the ground and perspective in leadership positions. And what that means is, if you just take a random military unit, or better yet, like an installation what does a very low-ranking enlisted person say that they saw out on the gate or out on a runway or a perimeter or a patrol? And then what does a high-ranking officer, commander, actually accept as true when they see those reports, right? There's always the game of telephone. There's a game of perspective. What did you see? What didn't you see? I mean, you can even go back... Right, as far as like the Napoleonic Wars, where, you know, on the way to Waterloo, there was a moment that because of just the circumstances of battle, one whole army was mistaken for a different army. Right? If you can mistake a whole army for being different than what they are, it's not that difficult to mistake one aircraft from being different from what it was. Now, I think the point here is, is that there was indeed an army there hard to mistake an army for no army, but it probably still is not that big of a leap for a commanding officer of an installation to at least consider the idea that somebody thought they saw something that they didn't, right? Okay, I thought I saw a plane up there. Was it a reflection off a of glass? Was I in a vehicle? Was I wearing glasses? Um, you know, was I looking at a mountain? Where was I looking? Where was the sun? All of these kind of things, like mistaken sightings of anything, are not that common. I mean, not that uncommon. And so, that psychology of a commander who's in a position to do something with some information becomes relevant at this moment, right? And not having personally lived through this era or been involved in the military in this era 
it's hard to know exactly what the perspective was was from installation commanders in the Air Force in the mid-50s about UFOs. What we do see from the historical record is that a lot more government officials were talking about UFOs in the 50s than they did in the 80s and 90s, and even up to modern times. Like you're, still not, you're still not hearing um, a lot of people just talk about UFOs. I'm not sure I've heard a sitting Department of Defense official talk about it other than to discuss some of the releases recently that and that was kind of their hand was forced in that scenario and if you read into it enough from some of the past officials who've been involved in this issue somebody bent the rules and some information got out and then that information getting out forced the Department of Defense hands to at least be plausibly transparent about what you're looking at, right? You have, you know, interviews now with the pilots who are chasing those objects. They don't know what they are, and they'll tell you, you know, how fast they're moving and all that stuff. It just wasn't plausible for the Department of Defense just to straight up say, nah, swamp gas. Sorry, guys. That was just swamp gas, right? Um, so some options were removed from the Department of Defense in these recent events, and therefore, it's hard to make a strong assumption about whether a perspective has changed because their hand was forced. But other government officials throughout you know, the last 20, 30 years just haven't had these same kind of discussions that were going on in the 1950s because of all the sightings. And that kind of goes back to what I mentioned. is that We just haven't had the same kind of sightings in the last 30 years that they had in the 40s and 50s, you know, in which we'll address that. Later, as we kind of talk the bow on this whole discussion, because it kind of drives government, drives some logic behind the way the government has dealt with these things. But anyway, following or maybe even before, slightly after, timing of all of this stuff can be a little bit hazy because official documents don't always accurately indicate the beginning of something. A lot of times. Um, whether you want to talk about a mission-type order or just a directive, somebody in the government or in the Department of Defense can give someone an order, hey, go start looking into this. Here, take this guy. Now you have a team of two people. Go start looking into this. And they'll start doing it as just a commander's project or a commander's action team. And it doesn't actually become official program of record until someone higher up the chain goes ahead and sanctions it with some sort of concept of operations or a document of what their mission is, and then provides them some funding to go do it. So it's really hard to say exactly when um, these things started. And what I'm really talking about is Project Blue Book, which if you've read anything about UFOs, you've probably heard about Project Blue Book. That was essentially finally an official government response to let's go investigate all of these sightings and see what we can find out about. So here we are with Project Blue Book, first real official attempt by U.S. government to study UFOs, at least on the record. Um, and it's really hard to view, or it's hard to know how to view Project Blue Book from its inception. Again, it's hard to understand the perspective of the average military commander or of average military officer about UFOs at the time. Oh, and I don't like to use my personal experience, but 
even without my personal experience, pilots are routinely fairly open to the concept of UFOs just because it seems like even those who have never said anything may have seen some things up there that they've just never bothered to tell anyone about for different reasons. Another thing to consider is that this is a very conservative period politically in American history, right? Cold War, we can't, you know, this is pre-60s, pre-civil rights movement, we cannot ignore the religious implications of potential UFOs being related to extraterrestrials or aliens. <clears throat> when it comes to science and studying all that stuff, it would just be ignorant on our part to discount the significant impact that religious beliefs has on someone's willingness to either engage in it or just their overall open-mindedness towards the concept. So, without attempting pure cynicism, well, I guess I should put it this way. In and of all of those other considerations, it's difficult to say any certainty what kind of credibility Project Blue Book had amongst rank-and-file military members of all, all services, all rank. It's also difficult to say from a policy perspective from the upper echelon of government whether this was a legitimate undertaking or not. And the best way to describe what I mean by legitimate undertaking is sometimes the appearance of doing something is better than actually doing it. Sometimes the appearance of doing something is better than doing nothing at all. And so the question is, those who you know, finally signed off and sanctioned this plot project, Google, did they actually want to do something about these unknown phenomena? Or did they just want to appear as if they were doing something about it? And that, my friends, is probably the best fulcrum of this entire discussion about the U.S. government. What do they know? What do they want to know? And what do they appear, or what do they want to appear to be doing? And you will also find, you know, I don't want to skip ahead, but this is not, when I say want, and, you know, give some personification to an organization, I'm not necessarily talking about the president, not even talking about the Secretary of Area of Defense. If anyone who's followed this will get to it when time comes. Bill Clinton, when he was president, he tried to get the answer to Roswell, and wildly, the Air Force still gave him the exact same answer that they gave in 1947. So, um, yeah, we'll get to that. But so, when I say we or they, none of this is usually a one. That's, that's what makes conspiracy ideas so difficult to swallow because these aren't just one guy building a team saying this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to keep quiet and this is what we're going to say. It is literally a momentum, an organization's momentum about a collective way of thinking. 
you don't have to be in a conspiracy to adopt a conventional way of thinking on a certain limited group of people and then from that conventional thinking among the group behaviors that reinforce that way of thinking just naturally and organically flow from the actions and behaviors of those individuals without any actual intent to do anything. You know, I mean, it's not that different from religious beliefs and religious activities and different behaviors that aren't religious in nature but still trend to follow. You just cannot generally separate your worldview from how you believe or how you behave every day and the kind of decisions that you make without literally putting specific conscious thought right into those decisions. And when you're talking about a bureaucracy, now we're talking about do I want my officers having to write reports about UFOs? The answer could probably be no, right? Because, again, conservative period of American history, academics wouldn't touch this topic with a 10 foot pole, right? It was a career ender for the academic community to touch the UFO, which is a problem. And put so much of the, I don't want to say responsibility necessarily, the focal point of it was on the U.S. government because you just couldn't get anybody with any kind of expertise outside of the government to lend a hand, to take a curiosity and expand it through some research and come to some kind of conclusion, even if that conclusion was, we don't know. And so, again, lots of things have been written about Project Blue Book, documentaries, different things, way better than I can do it. Now, if you're interested, check them out. See what you think yourself, what your intuition tells you. But the problem, I mean, the point is, the federal government takes an official position, but we're going to study these things and make it a report. And they catalog a significant number of what were at least reported to be UFOs, or what I would say reported being accepted observations. Right? This report accepted that somebody made an observation of something they didn't know what it was, so it went into the report. And I mean, I think it was in the thousand, maybe two thousand, I'm kind of guessing here. But, and they concluded, this team, and I'm not really going to get into the details of the team and who they put on it, because it's a little bit too far in the wings. It, it, it is relevant in terms of what exactly was the government trying to accomplish with Project Blue Book, and that purpose or that mission definitely would have informed who they put on it. Um, and so it is relevant, but I don't want to get into it because that starts to get too close to that conspiracy thing where you really have to make some uh, you have to make some assumptions about the purpose of Project Google being anything other than it was said to be which doesn't really track 
because even if the purpose from the overall policymakers was to give the appearance of doing something while actually doing nothing, you can't give the appearance of doing something legitimately if you don't put legitimately qualified people on it, on the team, on the board, on the group, as appoint them as investigators. So while the general nature of the topic, as well as general, I would say, psychological resistance to something, you know, as speculative, I would say, at this point, even more than speculative, probably in, in, in that time period, it's not a conspiracy or wouldn't require a conspiracy to have a group of people who are just skeptics, right? In a lot of cases, you only have two kinds of people that you're going to put on these things. They're either skeptics or they're believers. Uh, there aren't, unfortunately, a whole lot of purely neutral, objective parties who can don't take preconceived notions or bias into a topic like this, especially if you're going to pull from academia and the government. So, due to all that, somewhat difficult to ascertain anything about the federal government's position other than they recognized the need to study these phenomena either from a legitimate national defense standpoint or from a public relations standpoint. We probably won't know ever. And to be honest, it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? It's really, it'd be really easy to say in a boardroom with a general or a congressman saying, look, it would be good for public relations, right, and public perception of things to go out there and do this study. And so why not? Let's just do the study. And if the study shows us that there's something legitimate to be worried about, then we can worry about it. So, right, I mean, it didn't have to be one or the other. And again, that's where those conspiracy ideas, they tend to melt away because it's just not binary out there when it comes to decision making. There's a lot of dovetailing and different things. So after Project Blue Book, well, I don't say after it, what they did is they accumulated all these things. They come to a conclusion that like 80% or something were explained, and there were a number that they could never fully confirm what the cause was. They don't really go any further than that. They don't speculate as to what could be causing these other unidentified objects or phenomena that they couldn't doesn't go into that. Now, another thing that happened right in this period that we can't get away from is the space race. 